Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This episode is called The Price of Fish. It was written and will be read here by Andrea Vance, who joins me now. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Michael. So this story is called The Price of Fish, which sounds very everyday, but reading it was quite shocking. It's about a lot more. So tell us what it's actually about. Sure. Well, it's the story of the Antipodean albatross, which is one of um, New Zealand's most endangered seabirds. In fact, one of the world's most endangered seabirds. And they are the most incredibly beautiful creature. They've got an enormous wingspan. Um, One of the most beautiful things about them is that they mate for life. So they find a life partner and they return every year and and try and raise a chick. Um, And when one dies at sea, which is becoming increasingly common, then they mourn the loss of their partner. Um, So this story is about how tuna, canned tuna, is being sold in the US. And it's a you know an inexpensive staple of lunchboxes, and um, we use it all the time. And it's very very popular in the U.S., especially because of COVID. Canned food was ex- extraordinarily popular during lockdowns. Um, but unfortunately, the supply chain in the Pacific is pretty opaque, and you're not able to tell if the tuna that you are eating has come from a vessel which has caught um, these precious endangered seabirds in their net. So it's about transparency in the supply chain and it's about the death of one of New Zealand's most iconic species. And in this story, we're going to hear a bit about one bird in particular. That bird's name is uh, White 44J. So just tell us a bit about who that bird is and what they represent. Sure. Well, yeah, she's white 44J and um, she was a, a kind of a miracle of nature. Antipodean albatross breed very slowly. Um, they don't breed very often. They, in fact, don't breed until they're seven years old. And as I said earlier, they mate for life. So they, it takes them a while to find their life partner. So uh, white 44J survived being an egg. She survived hatching. She survived fledging. She learned to fly and took off on her maiden flight. And um, they fly enormous enormous distances, incredible distances across the Pacific Ocean in search of food. And unfortunately, they are attracted to commercial fishing vessels because they're an easy meal. They can um, get to bait uh, pretty easily on the surface. And so White 44J, on her maiden flight, she took off in 2019, she unfortunately made contact twice with a Taiwanese uh, fishing vessel. And there are a couple of scientists, uh, Graham Elliott and Kath Walker, who travel to the Antipodean Islands, where the Antipodes Islands, where these, um, it's the only place where these birds breed. And they um, put transmitters on them and they track their progress. And the transmitter of White 44J suddenly stopped working. And Graham and Kath were able to use information from Global Fishing Watch, which is a data which tracks all fishing vessels across the world. It's an incredible resource. And they were able to work out that she crossed paths with this Taiwanese vessel. um, And then her tracker followed the exact path of the Taiwanese vessel um, into port. And then from there, they were able to retrieve the transmitter. So sadly, on her very first 
maiden voyage before she really even had a chance at life, White 44J died in the nets of a fishing vessel. And it's a terrible, awful way to die. They basically um, can't surface, they can't breathe, they're often injured, struggling, and then eventually they suffocate and drown. So it's a terrible way for an incredibly beautiful bird to die. Thanks, Andrea. Now here is Andrea reading her story, The Price of Fish. It's an everyday food, spread on sandwiches, topping off salads, or mixed through a bubbling, cheesy pasta bake. Canned tuna is an inexpensive staple of lunchboxes and pantries, the third most popular seafood across America. The global market is worth 1.5 billion US dollars. But it is a lucrative industry that is killing New Zealand's most endangered seabird, the Antipodean albatross. The majestic ocean wanderer, which breeds on only two isolated islands, is likely to be functionally extinct within 20 to 30 years. Like the northern white rhino, this means that a few individuals are still living, but the population will never recover. There are an estimated 31,900 of the birds left, and only 9,050 breeding pairs. A new report shows close encounters between the threatened seabirds and international fishing vessels, much of whose catch ultimately ends up stacked in cans and pouches on the shelves of the US's most popular supermarkets, including Walmart, Target and Costco. Now, environmental organisations are calling on the retailers and their consumers to demand transparency in the supply chain to ensure their groceries are seabird safe. The Antipodean albatross is in a critical freefall, Livia Esterhazy, chief executive of WWF New Zealand says. Two thirds of its population has collapsed in just over 10 years. And we've been tracking them. We know that when they go out to gather food, especially when they have a chick on the nest, that they get caught in long lines. A lot of tuna is caught in that western central Pacific high sea space where there's a lot less legislation and visibility on the supply chain. The US supermarkets and consumers are very focused on sustainability, Esther Hazy says, but they don't know about the Antipodean albatross. They don't know it's critically endangered and they don't understand that it's being caught in the same lines that are catching the albacore tuna. So, we need to highlight the plight of this bird throughout that supply chain to say, how do you actually know that the tuna that's in the pouch you're about to eat has not killed this critically endangered species that's endemic to New Zealand? And they cannot answer that question at this point in time which is really scary. Greenpeace campaigner Ellie Hooper says, one of the main issues with the global fishing industry is that supply chains are notoriously not transparent. So while many of us can try really hard when we're at the supermarket to make the right choice, if we choose to eat fish, the problem is that we often just won't know. 
globally, it's quite a tricky trail to follow. It had taken White 44J the best part of a year to grow from an egg hatched in a nest in the tussock grass under Mount Galloway on Antipodes Island to a ball of fluff and then an ungainly fledgling. That she was even born was a small miracle of nature. The birds breed biennially. Their year on land is separated by a sabbatical year at sea. Juveniles like White 44J can stay at sea for several years before returning to the island. They won't start breeding until they're seven years old. White 44J lasted a little more than six months in the Pacific before the tragic encounter with a fishing boat, Quan Hang Fa. Breeding birds start their courting rituals with an elaborate dance involving clashing beaks and strange calls and roars. A single egg is laid somewhere between December and February in a ground level nest made of soil and vegetation. Parents take turns incubating it in shifts of about 20 days. It takes a year to raise a chick. The parents forage over the continental shelf edge in deep water from south of West Australia to the coast of Chile and can fly up to 100 kilometres in an hour. But in recent years, sea surface temperature changes caused by global warming are making their prey scarce and driving the albatross further north to forage, where they encounter fishing fleets on the high seas. The population has declined sharply over the last 16 years. More than half of the females on Antipodes Island have vanished at sea. This is reflected in the declining number of nests surveyed by Department of Conservation scientists Kath Walker and Graham Elliott in the Antipodes. Walker and Elliott have spent close to 30 summers on the island observing the birds. The general trend we've noticed over the last 15 years, Elliott says, is that they're going further than they used to. Obviously, they're not going to go further than they need to because every kilometre costs you a bit of something. They are working harder and in more dangerous seas. The remaining mate can't leave the egg because it would be seized by one of the island's predatory skewer. They're sitting there for a long time, Elliot says. They start to look ghastly. After about a fortnight, they look a bit sort of sunken and dehydrated. They can't even nip to sea for a drink. They've just got to sit there. Walker and Elliot's study in the Antipodes identified the continued decline of the albatross population has been driven by the much smaller size of the breeding population and reduced nesting success. With a three meter wingspan fully grown, the Antipodean albatross is among our largest seabirds. But the wings, dark on top and white underneath, rarely flap. Instead, conserving energy by exploiting small updrafts created by ocean wind and waves. They live for up to 60 years. The birds feed on squid and fish, swooped from the surface or shallow plunge dives. But they're attracted to boats in hope of an easy meal, scavenged from discards or hooked bait, 
They become entangled in long lines and drown. For the last two years, Doc has been satellite tracking Antipodean albatrosses, tagged by Elliot and Walker, to find areas of fisheries overlap. They are certain about how White 44J died because the bird's device was later recovered by the crew and returned. Hi, I'm Carol Hirschfeld, the head of video and audio at Stuff. If you're enjoying our Long Reads podcast, how about contributing to the Stuff Supporter Program? You can contribute any amount you choose, and you can do it just once, or monthly, or annually. Direct support from people like you helps us produce the kind of journalism you're listening to right now. Go to stuff.co.nz forward slash support. In 2019, 38 out of 63 tracked birds overlapped with longliners. One bird alone overlapped with 54 vessels. During this time, eight transmitters stopped working close to fishing boats. White 755, a female breeding albatross, is assumed to have been killed by the tuna longliner Moorrich in 2019. Her device stopped transmitting after an encounter with the Vanuatu-flagged ship, a thousand kilometres south of where White 44J drowned. Analysis by University of Edinburgh researcher George Fife, commissioned by Southern Seabirds Trust, shows that in 2019 the highest overlap was with Taiwanese-flagged vessels, followed by Japan, Vanuatu and China. Nine were from Australia and two from New Zealand. The clashes happened mostly in the western central Pacific, in an area northeast of New Zealand and in the mid-Tasman Sea. Most of the catch is destined for canning. The US is the primary market. 70% of all canned tuna consumed there comes from the western central Pacific. Albacore has a pinkish flesh and US consumers know it as the chicken of the sea. But it's not always clear how it arrived there. Some is unloaded to processing plants in Fiji, Western Samoa and French Polynesia. But for about a fifth of the catch, transshipping also occurs, where large carrier ships offload the fish at sea and move it to Asian ports such as in Thailand which supplies more than half of the US market with processed fish. For years, environmental agencies have been warning that transshipment muddies the supply chain and helps bad actors shift illegally caught products. Of the 111 vessels that interacted with Antipodean albatross and were tracked by George Fife, 40 transshipped. They were vessels flagged to China, Taiwan, South Korea and Vanuatu. The most popular destination ports were Busan in South Korea and Taiwan's Kaohsiung. The Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission is the intergovernmental organization which manages fishing in the region. Livia Esterhazy of WWF New Zealand wants it to improve tuna traceability by introducing blockchain technology. 
Blockchain involves a shared database that can't be hacked or altered and allows consumers to scan a code on a product to find out exactly where it came from. There is capability of visibility, Esther Hazy says. We've got blockchain that WWF has been working with to track tuna from bait to plate. And so these sorts of innovative tools could be one way of opening up that supply chain very, very clearly and allowing the consumer, particularly in those US markets, to make the right choice. Esther Hazy breaks down the process. The fish is caught, it's tagged immediately. It comes with a little QR code and then you can use your phone to zap the code and it shows you the skipper. Sometimes it shows you who literally caught the fish. It shows what boat, that it had no human rights abuse and it was caught in sustainable waters. The first step the US supermarkets can do is to really look into where exactly is that tuna coming from and they will soon discover that it's very hard to figure that out. And then working with us to have a very transparent and traceable supply chain is the key. To be selling tuna to consumers that is hand on heart, not killing this precious Taonga species. Walmart, Costco and Target did not respond to Stuff's request for comment. Oceans and Fisheries Minister David Parker backs the calls for increased transparency. We're always interested in using technology in a way that rewards the people that do the right thing and creates a relative advantage compared with those that don't, he says. Those economic incentives brought to bear by consumers are a very important part because at the moment, absent those incentives, you can see that it's cheaper to do things a bit rough and ready in a way that increases the risk of bycatch. But it's not just vessels on the high seas. Esther Hazy argues that the New Zealand government and commercial fishing industry aren't off the hook. Less than 20 Kiwi-flagged vessels fish for tuna in the Western Central Pacific Fisheries Commission region. Esther Hazy wants the entire tuna fleet to be fitted with onboard cameras and for more mitigation to be mandatory. A $68 million programme to equip 300 vessels with cameras by 2024 applies only to the inshore fleet. The law's not enough, she says. The fact that they can still be killed in our exclusive economic zone, where New Zealand has jurisdiction over natural resources, is not good enough. And the compliance with those measures and the ability to ping if they're not compliant is so low that we just don't know what's going on. Esther Hazy points out that there is currently little commercial imperative for fishers to weight their bait or use hook pods to stop birds reaching it. Unfortunately, she says, to weight a bait at the moment, it's 50 cents per weight. And you're talking thousands of bait hooks on a line. The hook pods are $10 a pod at the moment. Super expensive. If the fishermen are not doing 50 cents, they won't do 10 bucks. There's no need for fishermen to comply with that because the consumers are unaware. So again, it comes back to that supply chain problem. Should the government help? Absolutely. Ellie Hooper of Greenpeace points out that more than 90% of New Zealand seabirds are threatened. In 2019, commercial fishing killed over 14,000 seabirds during operations. And despite those statistics, 
we're not really seeing action at the scale that we need. The government released a national plan of action for seabirds in 2020, but it really didn't go far enough and relied on the commercial fishing industry adopting voluntary measures in order to mitigate seabird captures. This isn't going to cut it. Conservation group Forest and Bird want a zero bycatch commitment. The basic principle is if it's not food, we shouldn't catch it, strategic advisor Jeff Key says. Most of our seabirds are in trouble, but the Antipodean albatross are really in trouble. We're killing them off just as we killed off the dodo. Today on Newsable, are the Waz in trouble? What the Warriors need to do to get back on track after a month without any wins. Plus, the story of the Canterbury cocaine cartel and introducing the most boring man in the world. Could he be the cure to sleeplessness? For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. The Western Central Pacific Fisheries Commission requires vessels to use specified bycatch mitigation methods such as setting at night or using scaring devices. But the vessel can select which practices and doesn't have to use all of them. New Zealand requires fishers to do only two of the three methods, setting lines at night, bird scaring and weighted lines, which sink faster and are harder for seabirds to catch. The solution isn't rocket science, Key says. We know what you do off the back of a boat reduces the bycatch to negligible levels. We need to have observers on the boat because it's going to take a while before we get cameras on the fleet. We need to be seeing all three methods deployed and we need to see really accurate reporting. All of that has to happen. New Zealand needs to really set the standard. This is an iconic bird for New Zealand. We are the home for it. We have to show the rest of the world how to do the job. If we don't do that, then we're hardly going to get everybody else to do it. David Parker disagrees. If it were necessary to have all three, then we would regulate it. But the advice I've had is that at nighttime, there aren't the same threats and that it's not necessary to have all three. The COVID-19 pandemic has seen the number of Pacific Ocean fisheries observers plummet on vessels. This year, the Ministry of Primary Industries and the New Zealand Defence Force have deployed an Orion aircraft to patrol the Western Pacific they're using Elliot and Walker's tracking data to hone in on the albatross death zones. New Zealand is home to the most diverse seabird community in the world, MPI Director of Compliance Gary Orr says. And that includes a large number of albatross and petrel species. And we want to make sure it stays that way. The beauty of the Orion is that they can cover a huge area that these vessels are fishing in as part of the Western Central Pacific Fisheries Commission. 
When we're setting up a patrol, we can request the Commission to provide us with the positional data for all vessels in the area. That makes it easy for us to go out and identify those vessels that are fishing in the area legitimately. Any other vessels that we find in the area, what we'd call dark vessels, may be fishing completely illegally. The aircraft is fitted with high-resolution cameras, which are used to monitor if the vessels are complying with conservation and mitigation rules. You can see in such detail that you can identify species on the deck and see the faces of the crew members, Orr says. Any breaches are reported to the vessel's flag state and the Commission and its member states. We provide that evidential package, Orr says. It is a very transparent process. Everybody knows, everybody's waiting to see the outcome of the investigation, if the flag state applies any sanctions, and whether those sanctions are acceptable to the Commission members. David Parker says he has recently lobbied ministers from China and Spain on the issue and points to a bilateral agreement with Chile on seabird protection. All of these people are good people and they're human, he says. They don't want to see the extinction of the Antipodean albatross either. So it gives me some hope. On the other hand, the continued decline in numbers shows that it's not working well enough yet. That was The Price of Fish on The Long Read from Stuff, written and read by Andrea Vance and produced by me, Michael Wright. The recording of An Antipodean Albatross You Heard was provided by Graham Elliott and Kath Walker. This episode was mixed by Jack Price. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Duddy. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on The Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening. Listener.